0: Okay, well we're gonna look at the Bible in a moment. So if you don't have a Bible, why not go and grab one from the back? they will by the coffee. Uh, it'd be great to have the Bible in front of you. I am gonna put the words on the screen, but um, it's good to have uh good to have the, the actual text in front of you as well. I uh, I should give a warning, which is that um, the Bibles we have in the in the, uh, in the back of church uh, from about 40 years ago 30 years ago something like that the translation was made and it's constantly being updated uh, so that's why occasionally you'll notice that it departs the wording slightly departs from the words on the screen because one of the tasks of Bible translation is always to make sure it's in today's English uh, that's, the, that's the main point uh, if you are somebody who uses the uh, King James version um, still and I know there are plenty of people who do do that bless you I love you, you are welcome you might want to think about getting a different Bible um uh, the reason for that actually is interesting, which is partly, uh, it's partly because English changes. Um, so this may not be a difficulty if you actually grew up speaking the same English as they use in the King James Bible, then that's, not, and actually I'm not, I'm not joking about that, that there are um, people who grew up with it who find it very easy to understand what it's saying. But the meaning of words in English as in every other language changes over time. Uh, an interesting example of that is trespass, as in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, Lord forgive us our trespasses. Uh, you may not know that when the King James Bible was um, uh, being translated uh, in the 16th and then the early 17th centuries, trespass was actually a criminal offence. Uh, you trespassed against the king. In fact, every criminal offence was an act of trespass. This was a special subject of mine when I was uh, studying law. And the King James Bible is really the only use of trespass like that anymore. If you say to somebody you're a trespasser normally, they think you've trodden on someone's property, rather than that you've committed a crime against the king. Uh, I'm just giving that as an illustration about how English changes. Uh, uh, So when you read read a very old version of the Bible, they're using English that was appropriate for that time. Uh, The same is true about our understanding of... Ancient words. So we discover more about ancient Greek every year. Uh, why? Because we dig up more ancient Greek documents. You dig up another document and you see a word used in a slightly different way. You think, oh, it's got a nuance I didn't realise it had. Next time we translate an, an ancient Greek document, we'll incorporate that. So that's basically I'm making a pitch for updating your Bible version. I'm not having a go. <laughs> I bring that out because we're coming back to... Uh reading One Corinthians now. We are I'm just going chew yeah. I thought I'd chewing on the bottom of my shoe. I'm paranoid about the new floor. The We're coming back to reading one Corinthians. We're actually gonna um, read one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, and it's actually also one of the most important passages for our time. It speaks to very contemporary issues and to a lot of contemporary confusion. And yet, because it is hard to understand, it's also difficult to translate. And so I'm going to encourage you to uh, stick with me as I explain it. And uh, to try and ponder uh, and afresh how Paul is using the words in this passage, rather than necessarily how we would normally use them. Okay, That's one of the first rules of reading well is you want to understand how the person who's writing the thing is using words, rather than how you want to use the words. When I was a lawyer, if any of you have got a lease, or a tenancy agreement, or a mortgage agreement, one of the very first sections you'll find in that document is called definitions. And it will tell you what words mean in this document. And it's actually the probably the most important section in that document. Uh, when, that, when that section is not included, bad things happen. Uh, and uh, so we need to pay attention to the way the words are being used here and to understand and hear them afresh. The, the passage we're looking at today is from First Corinthians chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, we open it up. I haven't dealt in detail with Paul's teaching on food in chapters 8, 9 and 10. Those of you who are waiting for me to go through in detail whether you should eat food sacrificed to idols... uh... You won't hear me uh, addressing that particularly. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated an all-age service where we looked at the big idea from those chapters. The big idea from those chapters is that in everything we do, we should seek to glorify God and to put other people first. So if you ever come across a big ethical question in Christianity, should I do this or this or this? Really, they're the two criteria you should apply. Is it glorifying God? Is it loving my neighbour? So that they can love God. Paul says this phrase that sums up everything, his whole approach to ministry and everything. I seek to glorify God and I am as all things to all men. It's become a proverb. You know, you hear that about somebody saying he's trying to be all things to all men. Meaning he's trying to do too much to please other people. It comes from St. Paul. He says, I've become all things to all men that I might by any means win some of them for Christ. Or save some of them. Because he doesn't just mean men, he means men and women. And that's actually the rule one should apply. So the question is, should I eat food sacrificed to idols? If you can do it in a way that glorifies God and doesn't cause your neighbour to stumble, feel free. If you can't, then don't. And that's true for anything. Should I listen to this music? If you can do it in a way that glorifies God and doesn't cause your neighbour to stumble, fine. Should I drink alcohol? If you feel that you can do it in a way that glorifies God and doesn't cause your neighbour to stumble, then feel free. If you think it might cause your neighbour to stumble... Well, they're more important than the drink. They're more important than the food. They're more important than the music. In other words, and as with so much of what Paul says, it's not really about you. It's about them, and about God. So do go away and uh, dig into that talk. If you have the uh, book we've been using in life groups, uh, uh, Phil Moore. Uh, who writes that book has some very, very good, very short reflections on those chapters that I encourage you to read. They are very helpful. Today we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 11, however, which is one of the most difficult passages in Paul. It's difficult to understand, and it's then difficult to apply. Uh, And I'm going to give you a summary of it in one sentence. You should always be sceptical of someone who says that. This is a very difficult idea, and I can summarise it in one sentence. But here we go. Is this, as men and women, are crea- we are created to be equal. And yet, we're also different. And we should embrace both of those ideas. That might sound like a statement of the blindingly obvious. But actually, that's a, a, an idea that our culture struggles with a great deal. That we, as men and women, are created equal and yet different, and we should embrace both of those ideas. We're equal and yet different, and we should embrace both of those ideas. Uh, It's one of those uh, touchstones that we really seem to be struggling with at the moment. Uh, It's actually a a major cause for discussion within even contemporary feminism. Uh, I don't know how many of you here are... Uh, feminist theorists. I do have friends who are feminist theorists, and they will talk about feminisms rather than feminism. It's an interesting point. Are men and women different, and therefore you need both of them, uh, both of their separate voices and skills? If I could call this the Harriet Harman approach. You might have heard Harriet Harman, the politician. I'm not commenting on her politics, but she will often talk about how you need women in the boardroom, because they are different from men. If they were just the same as men, in a sense, it wouldn't matter to the companies whether they had just men or just women. She says, no, you need both, because they are different from one another. Other people feel very uncomfortable with that idea. They feel very uncomfortable with the idea that there's anything that particularly distinguishes men and women beyond, uh, in a sense, their physical form. And Paul wants to say, I'm very much in the middle I want to say we need both of them. They are dependent upon each other. And yet, they are also distinct. And in a sense, that's why they are dependent on each other. It's why you need brothers and sisters in the church rather than just sisters and just brothers. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Heather's going to come and read 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 1 to 17. Heather, I'm going to get you to read from this Bible. There's reading from the NIV, uh, the update that came out a few years ago. And it's largely the same as the one that you have for the back. Reading from verse 2.
1: I praise you for remembering me in everything, and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, that everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God.
0: Thanks, Heather. So that's easy. Easy to understand, easy to accept, easy to apply, easy. Dead easy. Well, it's good that it's not easy. Actually, there are several uh, things about this passage that should immediately tell us that there's something going on here that we need to explore. The first is, what does short hair mean? Is it really a disgrace for a man to have long hair? Samson was instructed to have long hair. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. That meant he never cut his hair. And yet Jesus said of John the Baptist, there is no one born among the children of men who is greater than him. Paul later will have his head shaved as part of a vow, which means he must have had longer hair before than afterwards. Was he more holy with short hair or with long hair? They should give you some pause for thought. Heather doesn't cover her head when she leads us in prayer, which gives you a clue as to quite whether we think there is something going on here that needs more exploring. One of the reasons why this passage seems weird is that the way that we understand our heads is different in every culture. In fact, lots of things are different in every culture. You have, in a sense, a principle that's the same, but it's applied differently. What do I mean by that? Well, if you went to uh, Victorian uh, England, you would find uh, ankles attracted an enormous amount of comment and interest. If a woman was showing her ankles, then that was thought to be a sign of desirability and that she desired a male to look at her. In the Middle East, apparently, in certain forms of uh, Middle Eastern culture, the face is considered to be the most desirable part of the body. Did you know that? That uh, one of the reasons why, uh, I'm going to use the wrong phrase because I'm not an expert on this, but uh, I think it's the hijab, which is the full face veil, happens, is because uh, a particular culture at a particular time decided that they wanted uh, women to be modest, there's a big problem with telling women how they should dress, which we'll come to later in this passage. But they uh, wanted to force women to be modest, and uh, therefore they had to cover their faces, because being modest meant having your face covered. Uh, and uh, you can think about that. That's interesting, isn't it? That that wouldn't be the first thing I would say to my daughter. I wouldn't say, you going out like that? I don't imagine I'll be saying to her, you need to have a mask on. I would think I'll probably be saying to her, maybe you need to wear a slightly longer skirt. For them, the face. In Scotland, men and women both wear skirts. That's an interesting observation, isn't it? Yeah. In England, men do not wear skirts, generally. What I'm trying to say is different cultures develop different ways that they denote the difference between men and women. the, The difference between men and women is marked. Every culture has a way, but it changes from place to place. One of the reasons why we struggle with understanding what Paul is talking about here is because we live in a very different culture to the one that he did. So when we face a text like this, we're not looking simply to copy the answer Paul gave. If you just copy the answer he gave, you miss the principle. There was a pastor I used to listen to, a guy called Gary Wilkerson, uh, and he uh, talked about doing a missions trip, he went to Romania, and he came to a church where uh, all of the girls had a very, very long hair, uh, and very, very long uh, kind of shawls on the back of their heads and very very tiny skirts in worship and he said i felt like they'd missed the point a little bit uh, and that you could say the same thing about the guys that they had their heads uncovered but they were dressing in a way that wanted to make the women go for you think you copy the symbol but you missed the point what we want to do is understand the point and work out how to embrace it in our culture We're not simply looking to copy Paul's answer. What we're looking is to understand the essence of what he's saying and then apply it in a way that's relevant for us, that means something for us. It's one of the reasons why when Paul says, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss, we don't insist that everyone who comes into the church kisses each other. What we do say is you have to be friendly to one another. If one of you wants to insist upon kissing, that's great. That's great. Please can you stay away from me? <laughs> I am very English. The first thing we notice, Paul's saying, is I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding on the traditions just as I passed them on to you. If I can encourage you, this isn't the main point of this sermon, but in, in a sense, unusually I'm going to say if I can encourage you to take away anything from this sermon, it's this in whatever you do, seek to hold on to the traditions. Paul's not talking about the traditions in the sense of we do it this way. What he's talking about is the teaching of Scripture. In everything we do as a church, we are seeking to embrace and embody the teaching of Scripture. And if you want to live a life that brings you closer to Jesus Christ, you can do nothing more uh, to help you than pray and read the Bible. The first thing Paul commends, the Corinthians, is terrible church for doing is that they they zealously want to hold on to what he taught them. They might be doing it wrong, but they're desperate to hold on to what he taught them. What he had taught them, it seems from this passage, is that everyone, whether they were male or female, should participate fully in worship. So... He, had this, uh, he goes on to talk about here, uh, men who prophesy and pray, and women who prophesy and pray. Both men and women praying. Both men and women sharing what they feel God has given them to share. Both men and women speaking the words of God. Now that doesn't sound particularly radical to us. We are living in a society in which equality before the law is actually legislated. And so we miss quite what a radical statement Paul is making here. It wasn't true of the synagogue. It wasn't true of the Roman pagan religions. It wasn't true of almost any society until Paul said it. And since then we've been working at how to live it. The reason I want to suggest that women have the vote and are treated as equal citizens in the West stems back to Paul's teaching here. And the teaching of Jesus. He's saying the church requires brothers and sisters. And they had totally got this. They'd understood it. They'd understood that women had gone from being seen and not heard to being full participants in the meeting. But they misunderstood the next part. They thought we had got to a place where men and women can both participate fully in the Christian society and in Christian worship, and therefore there's no difference between men and women anymore. We can just eliminate the differences. This is part of what's going on with the head coverings. It seems esoteric to us, but it was a big deal for them. Women would traditionally cover their heads in worship for two reasons. First, to differentiate themselves from men. It was a culturally-traditioned way of distinguishing between genders. And second, because in that culture, hair was considered to be one of the most seductive elements of, of female physiology. And in sense, they were doing it out of respect. And particularly if you were married. You weren't flaunting yourself to somebody else. And men were doing the same thing. They weren't covering their heads because they understood they were men. And so then the Corinthian church, hears Paul teaching, look, in Christ there's neither male nor female nor Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, but we are all one in him. You need each other and you should both be praying and prophesying in the meetings. And they hear that and they go, well that's great, we understand we're we're now beyond men and women. We're now beyond human physiology. And so they begin to embrace that in the way they dress. In a sense, the dressing is a symptom of the deeper problem. Not the cause. They reasoned from their new freedom to worship alongside the men the women that there was no longer any difference between men and women. Moreover, they were happy to display their hair to anyone, regardless of the message it was sent. After all, they're free, so why not? At the same time, men started to cover their heads in worship. After all, distinctions between the genders have been abolished, so why not begin to dress as women did? Paul commends them for their commitment to equal participation in worship, but then he tells them to stop that. So he starts with the men, tells the men off first, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonours her head. It's interesting that um, there's a lot of interplay between uh, puns on the word head here, which we're going to get to in a minute. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Is it because he's a kind of prototype burqa banner who wants to tell women how they should dress and men how they should dress while they're at it? Well, no. It's not that there's any magic in the clothes, in the hat, the scarf, or the veil. In another culture, that might be totally meaningless. I want to suggest in our culture now, it is almost totally meaningless. It is a tragedy, but men do not wear hats anymore. I'm doing my best to bring it back. But it doesn't seem to be working women don't particularly wear hats anymore or headscarves anymore. And in a sense, who cares? In another culture, it would be totally meaningless. But in theirs, it expressed how they saw the relationship between men and women and between men and women and God. It's a symptom of how they understand those relationships. In short, Paul wants them to understand we are equal and yet different and we should embrace that. To explain his point, he paints two pictures. One which emphasizes uh, the uniqueness of men, and the other which praises women, and then he reiterates how they both need each other. So the first is a picture he uses all the way through the next few chapters. He's going to talk about how we are one body. He's literally uh, painting a picture. Has anybody watched the Muppets? So the Muppets. I have watched the Muppets. I actually went to the O2 to see the Muppets. The O2 Arena. Uh, I saw them live. Muppets live at the O2. It was a childhood dream. I was nearly in tears. Both with laughter and with the beauty of the moment. If you watch the Muppets, you will see that they do this thing occasionally where they make what's called a Muppet Man. And uh, that's where the Muppets stand on top of each other. So two of them are the legs, and then one's the body, and then two more are the arms, and then another one's the head. Okay, this kind of Muppet Man made up of a lot of different people. It's a great way of teaching the concept of joint ownership. By the way, in law, if you want to understand joint ownership, it's a Muppet Man. But anyway... They, they together are one person. The Muppets together are one person. There are lots of them individually, but they make up a single person. Usually they're trying to get into a restaurant or into an office or something, and so they walk along and one of them pretends to be the head. and then Invariably they collapse and the whole person collapses. It's very funny. Paul paints that picture of the church. He says, I want you to understand that you are all one body. Some of you are legs, some of you are the arms, some of you are the middle, some of you are the head. It's a great picture. Actually, if you think about the Muppet Man, it's an even better picture, because when the, he- when the legs start to go, the whole thing falls apart. You can think that it's the head that's the most important bit, but actually the legs are the most important bit, because then they are the ones who support everyone else. So Paul paints this picture of a body. He says, I want you to realise the head of every man is Christ, so man and Christ, are one body. The head of woman is man... And the head of Christ is God. So you've got this kind of body going up and up and up. Here men and women are pictured as a single body, connected together, but in which men are the head. So they kind of saying, you're the Muppet Man, and the guy's at the top here. So his head sticking out the collar. It's a difficult picture for us to understand. We hear the word head, and we immediately think of boss. I bet that's what you thought of. As soon as you hear the word head, you think head of the company, head of the board, head of the country, head of state. The boss. That's how we use head. Or you might, if you're geologically minded, have thought of the word source. Head of the river. The one from whom everything comes. Both of those uh, readings are modern readings. They're not what Paul means by this at all. In the ancient ancient world, head wasn't used to picture either the boss or the source. What it meant... Was someone or something designed and made to have a particular strength and prominence? Now, you might be balking at that a little bit if you're a sister. Bear with me. I would suggest Paul is doing little more than stating that which is blindingly obvious. There is something different about male physiology that means they are stronger than women. I bet you I can bench press more than any of the women in this room. Rosemary might be particularly strong. I'm looking at her. She looks wily. Right? Not because there's any great virtue in me, right? It should be evident how absurd it would be for me to claim that as any credit to myself. I'm just bigger, right? I'm heavier. Some of the brothers are heavier than me. And because I didn't have to uh, breastfeed my children when they were at home, and because I wasn't the primary caregiver, I have a greater economic power than my wife, right? There's a reason why, um, men have traditionally ended up playing a more prominent role in society, it's usually because they didn't have to give care to children now you can say that's good, you can say it's bad I would suggest it's neither good nor bad, it just is right, there just is something about male physiology that's different from female physiology so then you might be thinking, I might be sitting there thinking, well I am your head, that's great fantastic patriarchy here we come, rule of the men so, Paul turns that around, he turns he to the room, he says, Well, I don't want you to think that I'm putting you down here. The men might be the head, they're, since they're built to be stronger. But they're not the most glorious or magnificent bit of humanity. If you want to see the greatest expression of what mankind looks like, humanity looks like, don't look at men, look at women. Uh, A man ought not to cover his head, so he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. In other words, you want to know the best thing that men do? They have daughters. You want to know the most magnificent thing a man has ever achieved? It's that he had a daughter and she was a woman. The best bit about humanity is the women. Men are the head, women are the glory. Now he's not intending to make a great... You can overanalyse those terms until you are blue in the face. His point is that there is a difference between them. Women are humanity's magnificence. That's another word for it. The thing that demonstrates its excellence. That is the greatness of what Paul is saying is best illustrated by pointing out that in the New Testament, Jesus, the one whom we built our entire faith around, is the radiance of the Father's glory. Paul's putting up counterpoints. What he's saying is there are differences between you not because there is an inherent hierarchy between men and women or women and men although there will be certain times when certain tasks are best suited to one and the other but rather because they have equal rather that because they are different yet have equal value and dignity so he actually concludes with this here's another tip for reading passages that you find difficult you ever come across an argument that's difficult start at the end look at what the guy's trying to say the therefore And then you'll understand everything else. This is how he finishes it. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. We're not interchangeable, but we are interdependent. We need each other, yet we can only function if we're content to be ourselves. Denying neither our dependence, nor our difference. Why? Why? Why does our flourishing require that we acknowledge this? First, because this is how God has designed us to be. He made a species that consists of men and women, male and female. He created them, it says in the beginning. You are not an accident. You are not an accident. Your physiology is not an accident. Your personality is not an accident. It's not just about reproduction, it's about cooperation and relationship, about complementarity and harmony. If I can put it using musical terms, because humanity is more beautiful as a chord than it is as a single note. Two notes resonating together. Second, it's precisely because we are different and we can leverage our differences for the good of each other that we thrive. When we choose to use the strength God has given us of which our sex is a part, for the sake of others, we enable them to grow. If we deny the differences between us and force each other into a single mold or personality type, we deny the blessings that flow from our diversity. To develop the picture of a body, we need both a right hand and a left hand. ears and eyes, men and women. This affects how we use our freedom. In a sense, this is where Paul is different from those who simply dictate what people should wear. He, He then appeals to the women. He appeals to them to use the authority they have been given by God for the sake of other people. And in a sense, we come back to that first point we started with right at the very beginning. In everything you do, glorify God and put others first. So he says to the women, he says, this is, it's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. It's a very difficult translation, uh, sentence to translate. Because of the angels. See, this is the best translation. It's the most recent one. It's the best way of rendering it in modern English. He's urging the Corinthian women to keep on praying and prophesying. To keep on exercising ministry in the church. But to do so in a way that honours others and builds them up. He's saying to the women at Corinth, you've got the right to cover or uncover your heads. You are free in Christ. Dress as seductively as you want, or seek to make yourselves into men if you want. You are free in Christ. Yet, your freedom and the authority to take decisions brings a responsibility to put other people first. He talks about this with men as well. Ephesians 5 verse 21 onwards is really all about how men should use the strength they've been given for the sake of their wives and the same in the church effectively he's saying this you have authority over what you put on your head so use it wisely show those who watch including the angels the goodness of God's design and the beauty of people who put others first by exercising your freedom by by choosing to cover your head I can give you a trivial example I'm going to come to application then we're going to pray what does this mean for us? it doesn't mean that I need to sell my hats thank God it doesn't mean I need to lend them to Heather although she looks great in hats we need to translate the principle so it's meaningful in our culture I have some suggestions about how we might do this when we come to worship we should dress in a way that honours and blesses each other not that causes each other a problem It's not about rules, it's not about dress code, but it is about recognising the way we act affects others and not coming to worship dressed seductively or distractingly or cross-dressing. Put it this way, I am free to wear whatever I like. In Christ, I have complete freedom. Yet if I turn up in a miniskirt, first of all, I might be seductive because my legs are wonderful. (laughs) Secondly, I would be denying my the way God's created me to be, my manhood. And thirdly, it would be incredibly distracting. Imagine all anyone would think about was the fact that Phil was wearing a miniskirt. Now, i picked that as a ridiculous example. It's too cold for a miniskirt. But it draws the point out how we behave affects other people, it doesn't excuse them, their response. They're responsible for themselves. But we would be foolish to deny that how we behave affects other people. If we, we want in the church, secondly, to develop a culture that honours the principle that men and women are interdependent. We want to see men and women praying and prophesying. Leading life groups, offering pastoral care, sharing insights about what God is saying to us. If I am honest, I think that this is a bigger challenge in our context for men than for women. That might seem odd because I am a man and I am up the front every week. That's wonderful. But if you add up the number of women who are willing to lead or to pray or to prophesy or to uh, help in this church and compare it to the number of men, I'm really saying, brothers, we don't come out well. Hold fast to the teaching. However, We also need to honour and respect the differences between men and women. Now this is a massive topic and it will be different for every person. It operates inside and outside the church. I offer a, a reflection for the workplace, for sisters. I got Heather to read this to check that it was okay. There is a pressure in an economy that values... Money, more than anything else, for women to behave as if they are men. There was a very famous spitting image sketch. For those of you who weren't around in the 1980s, forgive me. Spitting Image was a political satire show where there were puppets, um, outrageous puppets, which were uh, caricatures of people's faces. And the caricature of Margaret Thatcher is that as the 1980s went on, she became more and more like a man. Right, to the point, One of the most famous sketches was that they were in the male toilets, men's toilets at the House of Parliament, and two of the male members of the House of Parliament were trying to go to the toilet at the urinal, and she walked in, unzipped her trousers, went to the toilet, and then walked out. And one of them turns to the other and says, "I can never go with her standing next to me." Right, the reason why it was funny was because the, the, the image was of a woman who was being forced to behave much more like a man around her in order to succeed in work. Now that was unfair, but there was some truth in it, that's why it was funny. The pressure within the workplace is for women to act as if they are men, to put in the hours that men do, to prioritise the business over childcare even to dress like their colleagues it's less now than it used to be but it is still there I want to suggest to you if you are renewed and have a new identity in Christ don't accept the premise you are wonderful the way you were made you don't need to be like the men around you you don't need to joke in the same way as the men around you you don't need to act in the same way as the men around you you don't need to prioritise your business over your family if you don't want to You can be you, and you are still valuable to the business, and you're still valuable in God's sight. For men, there is an opportunity in the workplace to create space and create a culture in which that pressure no longer exists. It can happen through allowing people flexible working hours. If you're not in the workplace, forgive me, but I do a lot of application outside the workplace. I want to to do some in the workplace. You have responsibility for managing a team. You can manage it in a way that allows the women to function as women and the men to function as men, recognizing that there are differences between them. They will have different priorities. They will be operating in different ways, and they shouldn't be punished for that. In everything, seek the glory of God and put others first. And we can work through how that works in the church as well. Finally, I want to return to Paul's first sentence. Hold on faithfully to the Apostles' teaching. Get into the Scriptures. Read the Bible. So that you can grow in your faith.